Christmas is for caring. We hear that phrase all the time during this season. Christmas is for caring. What does that even mean? Caring about what? Why? Why should you even care at Christmas? You ever thought about that? What does it mean to care at Christmas? You know, many people have thought about that. I know some, many children uh, say that to care at Christmas is to give them everything on their demand list. I mean, their, uh, their Santa letter. Um, <clears throat> some spouses say that Christmas caring means that you read their minds or that you have a phenomenal memory and you remember that moment seven months ago on vacation when your spouse pointed at something in the store and they expect you to remember that and it should be under the tree on Christmas morning, right? Other people say that Christmas caring is a lie. They're pre-conversion Grinches or Scrooges and... Uh, and they say that anybody who talks about care or concern is false. It's all bah humbug, right? Uh, in fact, some are so cynical. This is true. I know people like this. They're so cynical. They really believe that all appeals to charity are just crafty designs to steal your hard-earned money. I think the most pathetic about Christmas caring are the atheists. Uh, atheists like to pretend that caring is just a biological reaction that is motivated by some kind of evolutionary group survival instinct. Uh, somehow, survival of the fittest gets turned off by this unseen force. And by the way, you better not ever call that unseen force God, right? <clears throat> so what's the truth? Are any of these various human definitions of Christmas caring accurate? Is it all a sham? Is it just biology? As you are no doubt asking right now in your Charlie Brown voice, isn't there someone who can tell me what care is really all about? And Linus, of course, as always, has the answer. Sure, Charlie Brown. The Gospels of Mark and John tell us exactly what care is all about. Look at your notes. Um, you got a worship guide when you came in. Open it up. Look on the left-hand side. Look at your notes at our theme for this series, the next few weeks that you and I are going to spend studying together. The theme of this study, to describe Jesus' person and works, Mark and John specifically apply a few terms in high concentration. Uh, beyond both the normal syntax for the age and, and beyond what we see expressed by other New Testament writers, John and Mark employ these particular words in a specialized expression of the Christ. In fact, these terms reveal the character of Jesus. This is so cool. They reveal the character of Jesus so well that their use may explain why Mark and John lack birth narratives. Isn't that wild? I mean, you know, Matthew and Luke have narratives. This is how the first advent of Jesus came about. Mark and John don't have those. And it may be they don't need them because of these words. These words tell us so much about Jesus, we may not need anything else. It goes on. Um, <clears throat> we learn from these four terms. We're going to learn from these four terms. Care, immediacy, reception, and true light. And what we're going to learn is going to show us important aspects of Jesus that will transform our celebration of him at Christmas. Do you understand? Mark and John employ four amazing terms. They tell us so much about Jesus, it probably explains why they didn't need to go into Jesus' miraculous birth. Isn't that cool? And these terms, care, immediate reception, true light, these, these are transformative ideas. They, they can change us as we learn them. Look up here at our premise. Premise is why. Why are we setting this series? Why are we doing this this year? Christmas time tends to sneak up on us, right? At least in the more sinister aspects of the current cultural holiday. To establish a proper frame of mind, we would do well to sneak up on Christmas instead. By looking at some biblical words that are particular to Mark and John, we can be struck anew by the power and depth of Jesus, which takes us straight to our objective. This is what I have prayed that God would do in me and in you through this series. We experience comfort 
joy, excitement, and light in trusting Jesus through the holidays. Amen? Pray with me to that end. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that I will and my, and my friends will <clears throat> experience comfort and joy and excitement and light because we know what it means to trust Jesus. We learn about who he really is and we rest on him in this holiday. We know that really will make all the difference and we ask you for that. We pray for that as well for our friends who can't be here, for our brothers and sisters who are traveling and those who are ill, those who are grieving and those who are just overwhelmed. We ask you to meet them with your care as well. In Jesus' name, amen. We start with a special biblical word for care, meli. Meli, you get to say that word on the count of three, boys and girls, one, two, three. Meli, Mali, Kliki, Maka. No, it's really, it's not Mali, that's Hawaiian. It's Meli, it's very similar. It means care, which is why our second candle of Advent is the candle of care. Let me tell you about Meli. It's a form of Melo, it's a word that is still used. Melo is still used in modern Greek to express uh, concern for something. Uh, Meli means to concern yourself with someone or something. It's not really employed very often in the New Testament, although Mark and John use this term a lot more than other people do. Um, <clears throat> despite its use over a long term, meli um, is a word that, that is not used often in the New Testament. So, so even though it's a thousands of year old word, when Mark and John use it, they're using it very pointedly. They're trying to say something very specific. And we, I think, would do well to understand what they mean. Suppose you had never seen or heard of a Texas horned toad. You'd never heard of, of a horny toad, never heard of a Texas horned lizard. How could someone explain it to you in a way that would make sense to you? Because this is a really weird creature, you know, if you never heard of one or seen one, right? I think they would do, I think they would do two things. First, they would, they would give you some synonyms. They would try and help you understand it by saying what it's like or what it is made for, what it's similar to. And then they would probably give you some antonyms, some things that it's not like this, not like that. So, all of you, instruct me, please. You're trying to teach me. I've never seen or heard of a horned lizard. You're trying to tell me about this Texas animal. Uh, raise your hand and tell me a synonym. What is something? Give me some animal that, yeah, what's it like? It's like what? A koala? I don't think so. They eat eucalyptus leaves. This guy eats ants. Try again. Yes, what do you got? It's prickly. It's prickly, Okay. Okay, Texas, cactus, prickly, good, what else? What, tell me about it, what's something else, what? Yeah, it's like a dragon, it is, it's like a, it's, yeah, that's right, a bearded dragon, it's like a little tiny triceratops. Yes, what do you got? It's brown, thank you, very good, they are brown, um, except out of their eyeballs. Does anybody know what, why their eyes, what happens from their eyeballs? That's right, blood. When I was a kid, these were all over the creek around uh, behind my house, and, uh, and we would catch them. And when they're scared, they puff up. That's their first line of defense. But when you pick them up and they're really scared, they actually squirt blood out of their eyes. It is terrifying to a five-year-old, just telling you hypothetically. Um, <clears throat> all right, now, <clears throat> if we're going to understand it, we also got to know what it isn't. So here's what it's like. Now, here's what it isn't. And by the way, this is exactly what the Encyclopedia Britannica does. 
on the page for the Texas Horned Lizard in the Encyclopedia Britannica, they have this chart, and it's all these other genies of lizard. And so we learn that the genus uh, Phrynosoma is different than Basilicus, and it's different than Amphisabana, which are disgusting. And it's, um, it's different than the Gila monster, although it also can shoot blood. I was not really good. And so, so you learn what it's like by seeing what it's not and like what it is. Well, guys, it works the same way with words, Okay. I want to show you some synonyms that brilliant Greek scholars have put together for meli. Here's things that meli is similar to, okay? Merimna is a Greek word. It means to be concerned or anxious about something, used very often in Greek literature. Uh, frontizo is to exercise care, to, to make provision. It, means to, it really means to build something for somebody, like a, like a groom getting his house ready for his bride. Uh, phreneo is used a lot in the New Testament. It means to think or to mind, mind the gap. That's, that's phreneo. Uh, episcopeo is to show oversight. It's, a, it's based on the same word that we use for you guys that are elders. It means an overseer, uh, bishop, somebody that looks over. And a prosejo is to pay attention, to think about something. Whoa, pay attention, look out for that. Okay, those are the synonyms for meli. Here's some antonyms for meli. A meleo, makes sense. A is without, that's to neglect something. Uh, Epilanthanomai is to put out of mind, to be forgetful about something or someone. Oligoreo is really fun. Uh, it's based on a, a Greek word for, um, for oligarch, somebody that um, is a, a, a ruler of a place and not very caring about people. And oligoreo means you have little time for the little people to do that. And then uh, American, I'm sorry, uh, amarimnos is an adjective that means without care, without anxiety. I always remember because Americans are so wealthy, they're without any cares. <coughs> All right. All right. Meli is nothing like those antonyms. It's slightly different from those synonyms. It means care. And John and Mark employ it to help us understand the person of Jesus. All right. With an introduction, open your Bible to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. In, in Mark 4, uh, the disciples have no idea about the depth of Jesus' meli, his care. Um, look at verse 38. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Here's the setting. The disciples and the Lord are out on the Lake of Galilee when a nasty storm comes up. Jesus is sound asleep in the boat, even though they're being sloshed. Uh, these young disciples are afraid. And by the way, I don't think you can say they're overreacting. Any of you ever been on a lake or, a, or the sea in a really in a storm when the boat was moving around? It, it's frightening, is it not? And, and these are experienced people, at least many of them are. Uh, a number of these guys are fishermen, and they've spent their whole life on this lake. Peter uh, actually owned the company. The word that's used for him is one as an owner, so he owned a fishing company. This is not a new experience to them, and if they're scared, this must be a really big storm. Verse 37 says the boat's already filling up. But look at what word they use when they wake up Jesus. Meli, care. I would have used prosecho. It makes so much more sense in the situation. This is purposefully done here. Prosecho is what makes sense. Teacher, how can you be asleep through this? Aren't you paying attention? But no, that's not what they say. What they express is, is reported by Mark as meli, care, concern. Jesus, teacher, they cry out, don't you care that we are dying here? Suppose you're in a holiday season and you're feeling swamped. There's neither money enough or time enough for everything. You're missing loved ones who were gone. You're lonely. You're anxious. And deep down, you are asking the exact same question the disciples did 2,000 years ago. Jesus, teacher, we cry out. 
Don't you care that we're dying here? Now, those of you who've read the Gospel of Mark, what happened next? What happened next? Those of you who remember the story, what happens next? What does Jesus do? Yeah, calms the storm, stills the storm. Pick it up in verse uh, 39. Don't you care that we're going to die? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was great calm. And he said to them, why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? Do you still have no faith? They started by asking if Jesus cared. Now they see how much he cares. He cares so deeply the very elements cannot harm his people unless he allows it. Meli was used of the question. Thus the answer by definition is not just a show of power. Don't misunderstand this passage. It is a show of concern. Meli is the question. Meli is the answer. They should have faith in Jesus' care for them, his love for them. One of my go-to Greek scholars is Martin McDonald of our pulpit team. This is really great. Martin wrote me this week as we were talking about this, and he wrote this. Wayne, Meli is a beautiful word here in Mark 4. Jesus loves us, and so he cares. He is interested in us, pays attention to us, is concerned for our well-being. He knows us, considers us, gives regards to our needs. As a human, Jesus understands our pains and fears. As God, Jesus is not neglectful. He does not forget us or dismiss us from his thoughts. He cares for us. And his care is manifested in his forethought, provision, and exercise of love. Melly indeed. Amen? Our Christmas stress can be amazingly similar to a stormy sea. And as we ride out the storms of this life, sometimes we languish in fear and defeat because we haven't understood the width and the depth of Jesus' care. It is not Jesus who needs to wake up. It's us. Wake up. And have faith in the depth of his melee. In Ephesians chapter 3, that is exactly what the Apostle Paul prays for all of us who are Christians. Read with me. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, 17 through 19. You take the underlined text. I pray that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, the height and depth of God's love. And to know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge, so you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen, amen. Now, look at Mark 12 for the next use of melee. Actually, he uses melee uh, another time, but we're going to, a few other times. We're going to go to Mark 12 for the next one. We'll see. Mark 12, uh, turn over there and let's go to verse 14. Mark 12, verse 14. When... They came. Oh, by the way, I'm going to read this one from the ESV. I think the English Standard does a slightly better job on this particular passage. And they came to him and said, teacher, these are bad guys, so this is how they spoke. Teacher, we know that you're true and do not care, that's Melly, about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? right? Um, These nasty, horrible people are the government-backed Herodians. That's what they're called. It's a bunch of Jews who are deeply involved in in a bunch of government schemes, and they're being totally snide here. They're being very ugly. Nonetheless, nonetheless, they speak truth. It's one of those times, these come up fairly often in life, actually, when one's enemies give great truthful insight about a person. And, And it is true that Jesus only cares for truth and love. 
His melee is not swayed by appearances. He cares only for the way of God. Now, just to clear away the underbrush, Jesus answers their trap question brilliantly. Uh, look at verse 15. Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And I, th I think at that point Jesus flipped the coin. I really do. I just think he's like, bing. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Bing. And to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now that's, that's a wonderful, brilliant answer. And it certainly helps us regarding taxes. But just for today, zero in on verse 14 and Meli. As we put atop the right side of our notes, concerned for humans, he is unconcerned for human opinion. One of the most important aspects of caring is to ascertain the difference between real care for humans and concern for popular human opinion. In our day, the shifting streams of human preference are the paramount thing. And it's absurd. And it's eroding our society. The absurdity of a society established on the unfound, unstable foundation of human opinion is becoming more painfully clear all the time. To value an opinion over God's truth is to trade the eternal for the temporary. Smith Noland is an old friend of mine and a very gifted Christian counselor. One time I was speaking at a conference and uh, he ended up seated next to Smith during the, the rubber chicken portion of the thing, during the banquet time. And we got into a great conversation and I asked him this. I said, hey Smith, I've, never, I've always wanted to ask you this. What makes you such a great counselor? And he, without batting an eye, he said, because I don't care what people think. I care less what they think. And that's fascinating. This is a guy whose only money comes from people paying him to, um, to help them. And he said, what makes me great is I don't care. Now, Smith Noland, my friend, loves people deeply. But he learned from Jesus not to care what people think. This is critical if you're going to be a wonderful counselor. It's also key to great parenting. If my primary melee in my home, if my primary care is what my child thinks of their opinion, what is my kid going to eat all the time? Junk. Don't say candy. Candy is not junk. <laughs> it is a very important food group, but it's not critical at the start of a meal necessarily. You should have some vegetables first, and then you can have your candy. But junk, they're just going to eat junk, right? If my primary melee, my primary concern is my kid's opinion, what's my kid going to watch? Junk, right? Are they, are they going to turn out to be a productive person? No, this kid's going to turn out to be an absolute spoiled brat, right? Jesus cares. Mark 4 taught us that. He cares for us, but he doesn't care for our opinions about happiness. In fact, he loves us too much to care about our limited human opinions, our changing ideas of happiness, because he cares about the absolute of holiness. Consider that for a moment. God the Son loves you. He has melee for you, but he is absolutely unswayed by your opinion. As one of our elders likes to put it, I love how he puts it. He says, Jesus loves you so much he doesn't give a whit about your temporary temporal happiness. That's real love. Our Christmases will be much better if we will learn this from the Master. Think about all the things we worry over. All the things, we get so worried about propriety at Christmas time. We get concerned that we'll be dressed inappropriately for a party, right? Yeah? Do you, do you know how much time we spend worrying about what to wear to Christmas parties? We, we fear so many silly things. We're terrified that we're going to buy uncool gifts for the grandkids, right? 
Ah, uh, we've been out of this for a while. We're not really connected. What's cool? Ah, uh, we're going to be that horrible grandparent that gives us stupid gift that the kid has. Oh, we worry about that. We worry about sharing the good news about Jesus' advent, that that will get us in trouble at, at the office or the shop. And we, people won't. Hogwash. If we share real love for people, everything takes care of itself. If we care about opinions, nothing of worth gets done, and we will never feel the freedom to express God's true love. We must care so much about people that we don't care about human opinion. Let's read Romans chapter 1, verse 16 together. Romans 1, 16, all together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. Amen. Now, please flip over to John's gospel, if you will. Let's go to John uh, chapter 10. We're just going to do a couple in John as well, a couple of Mellies in John. Uh, John 10, starting at verse 11. This is the great good shepherd discourse of Jesus. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired man, since he's not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them, runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he's a hired man and doesn't care about the sheep. As we say it in our notes, Jesus is the true shepherd. All others will leave you empty. The image of the good shepherd was already ancient at the time Jesus gave this uh, particular discourse. And Jesus taps into that image as a, as a means, as a metaphor for displaying his melee, his care. Uh, it was already very old. These kind of uh, little symbols already existed. Then this is an olive wood good shepherd that a friend made for me in Israel. The discussion in John 10 actually develops a number of really important themes about Messiah Jesus. And most of them are based upon this good shepherd metaphor. Because of that, I think the Lord may have been teaching in a shepherd's field like this one. Uh, this is a, a very, very old, hundreds of years old cave, which is still to this day used as a sheepfold. It's right across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. And, and I'm trying to lie down here and explain the true shepherd teaching as he is in front of the sheepfold. You see what happens is coyotes, I, I mean wolves, sorry, Frisco. Um, they always chase roadrunners. What do you expect? Anyway, um, wolves will come and they will attack to this day. They will attack when the sheep are there and wolves can be very, very frightening. And so the non-owner deserts the sheep. He's more worried about his own life. He leaves the sheepfold empty, unprotected. No door there that is a human door in front of it. But the true shepherd, the owner, steps in and if necessary, he lays his life down for the sheep, saving them. So think about the difference between our true shepherd, Jesus, and some of the false shepherds to which we tend to turn. Let's think about those for a moment. Alcohol is not forbidden scripturally at all. And yet, sadly, it has become a really popular tool, even among Christians, to get through holiday stress. Ooh, I need more wine to get through this holiday stress. Beware. Solomon was spot on when he said that alcohol is a mocker and beer is a brawler. All right? To handle stress, why don't we try encouraging, engaging with Jesus instead of with a bottle? Let me tell you what. Jesus is not going to desert you. He's not going to make you say stupid things or give you bad advice. And there's no hangover. Speaking of false shepherds, cultural traditions are another one. Cultural traditions are fine. In fact, they're good until they become the main shepherd of our families trying to get us through the holiday season. And then they always disappoint. Always disappoint. A, a mom that I know, uh, one of our missionaries in Italy, 
sent me this photograph of their family. She said, you've got to see this. They were in their village in Italy. They were doing gingerbread house building, as we do in some of our schools here. And, and, uh, and somebody, she didn't remember who, but somebody in their family had put this cool cross on their gingerbread house. She said, Wayne, it wasn't minutes later that someone had covered up the cross with a Christmas tree and a toy shop sign. Christmas trees are great. Santa is wonderful. Toy shop, toys are awesome, all right? But not when they cover up the cross. Don't let that be your holiday. All those tradition things are fine until they cover up the Lord Jesus. He alone cares for your soul. Worship him. Now, I know what we're all wondering in our, um, in our wolf imitation. We're all asking the same question. Does it really matter, right? What, what shepherd we turn to for help? After all, toys seem to help a lot of people. Booze seems to help a lot of people, right, wolf? Do they really? You know, I don't think they do. Because they eventually and always leave the person empty. And that is something Jesus never does. Further, Melly care. Think about this thing. It doesn't really exist in the materialist worldview, all right? Those who rely on anything other than Jesus do not have a reason to care for anybody. Think, if I have already traded the eternal for the temporal, then what, what, if this earth is all there is, what reason do I have to care? There's no reason to care. Robert Lamb of the band Chicago was a really good thinker. And, and he thought this through, I think, quite well. He, he wrote a poem that became a song way back, 1969. He wrote this. Um, does anybody really know? As I was walking down the street one day, a pretty lady looked at me and said, her diamond watch has stopped cold dead. And I said, does anybody really know what time it is? Does anybody really care? If so, I can't imagine why. We've all got time enough to cry. As I was walking down the street one day, being pushed and shoved by people trying to beat the clock, oh no, and I said, yes, I said, people running everywhere, don't know where to go, don't know where I am, can't see past the next step, don't have time to think past the last mile, have no time to look around, just run around, run around, and think, why? Does anybody really know what time it is? Does anybody really care? If so, I can't imagine why. We've all got time enough to die. Close quote. That's not depression talking, folks. That is wisdom. All other shepherds, all of them, diamond watches, work, booze, hurrying, toys, they eventually leave a person empty. And that is something Jesus never does. That's why Jesus tells us this. Read it with me, please. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Let's read it all together. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Amen. Now flip over probably a page, maybe two in your Bible to John 12. Flip over to John chapter 12. Let's find our next Meli. Kalikimaka. No, chapter 12, verse 1. We'll read 1 through 6. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was. Bethany, just like that field I showed you, Bethany's on the east side of the Kidron across from Jerusalem. It's just on the back side of the Mount of Olives. Uh, where Lazarus was, they came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them. Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of fragrant oil, pure and expensive nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Then one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray him, said, 
Why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Judas is, Judas is the perfect example of falsely, a false spirituality, of a falsely spiritual person. And here he shows us that the falsely spiritual people, and I believe they always do this, falsely spiritual people complain about other people's priorities. They do. Mary's massive expenditure was in honor of Jesus. That is all that matters. Look at, look at Jesus' reply to Judas. Look what he says to Judas. Uh, verse 7, Jesus answered, leave her alone. She's kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus ignores the poor or he doesn't want the poor blessed. That's absurd. Jesus is declaring a clear prioritization. We worship God first. In this case, God is worshiped by the sacrifice of something very expensive unto the Lord. And there is no apology. This, this could have paid for over 900 meals for poor people. And there's no apology because the priority is clear. One of the worst things about false spirituality is it always misses the point. Here the point is priority of worship. Judas pretends that the point is that Mary should feel like a poor steward. She should feel guilty for being rich and wasteful in using her wealth to praise Jesus. False spirituality. And our age is, of course, expert at false spirituality. For example, in our day, it is very popular to tell anyone who spends money that they should feel guilty. Pretending to care about the poor, these expense police of our day only make things worse. Because you know what they do? They cause the rich to stop spending money that the poor desperately need to be in circulation. The point is whom one is worshiping. You know this, right? I can give to the poor in such a way that is actually anti-spiritual. It's actually against God's multitudes of calls to care for the poor. And the reason is because as I do it, I'm worshiping them. Or much more likely, I'm worshiping myself. Look what I did. Gave to the poor, right? Conversely, folks, I can expend hundreds of dollars for presents, and it can truly be a means of me worshiping God, of pouring my resources at Jesus' feet. The, the point, it's not a materialist issue. The materialist worldview says we've all got time enough to die. It's a spiritual issue. It is a matter of my spirit behind the material. And this requires a whole lot more prayer and a whole lot more thought than legalism does, Right? With legalism, I just check off the boxes, and then I feel self-righteous, right? So in our day and age, I just check off these boxes. Pretend to care, check. Eat kale, check. Don't eat whatever is cool not to eat this month, check. Practice selective tolerance, check, right? Feel self-righteous. Ta-da, I arrived. Jesus' way, I've got to think. I have to consider with every gift that I get or I give, I have to work through how I give or receive in a way that honors the Lord of Christmas. I'm going to decide how much you're in giving I'm going to bestow on his church. How can I sacrifice wisely as a steward? I have to examine my priorities as I sacrifice boldly but wisely. Because of the way Melly is used here, care is used here, I'll tell you folks, I frankly personally am very mistrustful of anyone that I hear complain about other Christians' sacrificial expenditures. When they complain about other people use their money, I, I'm, I'm worried. I'm at least going to stop and think and pray. For example... There's a certain church woman, I'm not going to say her name, uh, she does not go to church here, she's from another city. She wrote a very popular uh, bunch of books on simplicity. I think it's what we'll call them, simplicity books. I mean, that's cool, that's great, actually. However, when I read one of her books, I was bothered 
And so I got a couple of her other books, and I began to read some more of her books, and I was troubled that there was this idea that automatically every single expenditure that somebody else makes is a sinful extravagance. That's what came through. And her supposedly simple lifestyle just reeked of of Judas-like self-righteousness. So when one of our ministries wanted to use one of her books in a study, I did something we very, very rarely do. I instructed the pastor who was in charge of that ministry to, uh, to employ the veto. We, we, we blocked her books because they seemed to me to be laced with Judas Iscariot legalism. And thus, we were not at all surprised when a couple of years later, this lady came out as a heretic. She wrote a book in which she showed that uh, she had decided that trust in the biblical Jesus was not enough for salvation, and she exposed herself as a warper of Scripture to fit her own desires. Look again at verse 3. Look at it. Mary took a pound of fragrant oil, pure and expensive nard, 900 days' wages. Okay, so think of two and a half years of your salary. That's how much this cost. Two and a half years of your income. And she anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. I have had Christmases as an adult. I have had Christmases where I could not scrape together more than $50 for a special year and gift to the church. And every gift that I gave anybody else was homemade. I've had those Christmases. I've also had years where I could put thousands in the year-end offering and all the gifts I bought were expensive. None of that matters eternally. What matters is that the fragrance of my giving, whether it is rich or poor, fills the house. You see, when I give before Jesus, when I give with God as my priority, people are blessed by the fragrance. If I don't pour my generosity at the feet of the Lord who gave all for me, then I stink. Don't, don't, don't miss that gave all for me part. This is, told, this is very specific writing. And we're told in the beginning, Lazarus, whom he what? What did it say? Anybody remember? What did it say? Whom he raised from the dead. That's, to, that's so that all remember as a Christian who's been raised from the dead by, by virtue of my trust in Jesus who conquered death. I, I, I'm like this family. I'm like Lazarus and Martha and Mary. If, if I don't, how, however wealthy or unwealthy I am, if I don't lavish on the Lord, then I stink. Here's how Paul wrote about this. Read with me, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. This is a heart issue. It's not a material issue. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, everybody, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let's close with this verse, one last verse, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 from the New Revised Standard. I, I think this is the best translation of this verse. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Peter is a friend of Mark's. This is the only time that he uses this fairly unusual word. He uses meli here to declare that the triune God is the only right depository, the only right place to take our cares. We cast our anxieties on him. Now look at this. Anxiety is the Greek word merimna. Uh, Merimna may sound familiar because it was one of those synonyms that we listed for, for Meli, slightly different. Merimna is actually a lot broader word than Meli. Um, it, it could be either positive or negative depending on the situation. Um, it can be positive care. It can be negative worry. And it's brilliant how Peter uses it in the exact same sentence with Meli. Everything 
from our most positive responsibilities uh, or our most positive loves to our most negative worries, our most negative anxieties, everything can be cast upon the Lord. You see that? We throw our weights on his feet along with our offerings. Why? Melody. Because he cares for us. He cares for us. So what are the... The anxieties, the concerns, the worries, the marimna. What are the marimna, uh, marimna that we have this time? Okay, none of you have. You guys all have it perfectly together. Other people that you know, what are things that they get anxious about and worried about at this time of year? Raise your hands. Tell me some things they get worried about. Yeah, what do you got? Money. Yeah, money. Amen. Uh, all, yes, what else? Travel. Mm-hmm. Keep to a schedule. Yeah, I hear travel can even cause a basketball team to not land in the college station. Anyway, the um, yes, what do you got? Family. Uh, the weight of family. And by that, of course, we don't mean that we all gain weight at Christmas, which is true. But the weight of having family members that are difficult. They're just hard. Yeah. And what's funny is they're in their church saying the same thing about us. Yeah. Um, yeah, what else? What do you got? What's that? Loss. Loss is tough. There's a reason that, um, that Dickens uses the empty picture of Tiny Tim's chair as a, as a the painful turning point in the story, right? Because we've all felt that. It's very hard. You get to memory time of year and there's an empty chair, right? And, and then you've got the other side of it with the family members that <laughs> you wish their chair. Anyway, that's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's really difficult. All right. So let me ask you another question. We listed all those merimna. Does God care? About, does, does God melly about those things? Yes or no? Does God care about all those things? Yes or no? Yes. The Father, Son, Holy Ghost melly about those merimna. So what should we do about it? Well, we should cast our cares on him. So here's what we're going to do. I, I want to kneel. And you don't have to. But if you're able, I encourage you to kneel. I I think there's a reason that Mary didn't just lob the perfume at him as she stood, you know. There's, there's something about casting my cares and my gifts on the Lord. The closer I get to his feet, it just physically seems to help me. So uh, you can kneel up here with me. I would love the company. You can kneel where you're at. And while we're kneeling, the band is going to lead us in a beautiful song, Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And let's worship and pray individually as they lead us. Let's kneel together. Almighty God, thank you. Thank you for Emmanuel, that you are with us. You care for us. Thank you for Melly, that Christmas really is for caring. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to share your care and to imitate your care.